Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice podcast, where we highlight the everyday injustice that befalls the criminal justice system. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years as Vanguard Court Watch, we have operated court watches in California, San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? To shine light on everyday injustice in the court system, and now more broadly, we shine a light on injustice in the criminal justice system as a whole in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. Imagine you have been arrested and held in custody for years for a crime that you did not commit and deprived even the right to see an attorney. Incredibly, that's what happened to James Fair and his wife, Angela. James Fair of Washington was originally charged with several crimes after he allegedly ran over a couple of people with a pickup truck during a confrontation in Washington in 2015. One of the individuals died and the other was injured at the scene. He has maintained from the beginning that he and his wife were being attacked by the two individuals and he was attempting to drive away from them when they suddenly surrounded his vehicle and he was unable to avoid hitting them. It took a long time, but finally in 2019, an appeals court tossed out the criminal charges ruling that the prosecutors couldn't disprove that he acted in self-defense. So we have on our show James and Angela. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It was Thank good you. to be here. So I'm hoping you can kind of lay out the story, how, how this confrontation transpired, and then uh, kind of uh, how that led up to your arrest. Okay. And... What makes this story very complicated is people were very close. They were all living at the, in the same large uh, two-and-a-half-story house. Um, and so as this effort went uh, to um, treat a woman dying of stage four uh, breast counter, all the parties here are very intimate. The meals are prepared and eaten together and uh, very uh, cerebral conversations are had, a great deal of intimacy and trust between the parties. So what transpired on the uh, June 18th day up in uh, Okanagan County, there in the north part of Washington State, was the people that were assisting actually were operating a scam where they promised people who were in uh, serious financial uh, with their mortgages uh, relief, a way to get the, to keep the um, house from being sold on the courthouse steps of the county for back taxes and non-payment of uh, the mortgage and the like. And so the, the scam of this, uh, Deborah Long and cohorts is they get people to put 15000 up front and then they're going to represent you as uh, legal counsel and uh, get you relief and you know, to be able to keep your house. And in most cases, all they do is just take the $15,000 and run. What made this case different was it 
took place over about three months, and they were successful. They actually got uh, Michelle St. Pierre was the woman dying of breast cancer, and of course she was unable to work, had no source of income. So the uh, power bill wasn't being paid, and the mortgage wasn't being paid, the taxes weren't being paid, and the house was scheduled to be sold uh, on the courthouse steps of Snohomish uh, County, where this property was. And uh, what makes the what brings in this complexity is they were successful. They actually did go uh, to a mediation and get um, control of about a $689,000 piece of property, as well as another $360,000 piece of property, because Michelle was a real estate agent, and uh, she had renters in there. And of course, um, the rent got used for medical expenses, and that put her upside down. So when this crew came along and uh, they were just going to run their normal scam of stealing $15,000 and skedaddling, uh, they ended up with over a million dollars that they were in control of. And the only two people that knew about it, because we were very intimate living in the same house, you know, we're talking about medical care of Michelle and uh, bedpans, you know, it's a very close situation. Um, the only two people that knew were James and Angela Fair. And what they had done is uh, Michelle had, uh, you know, collection agencies after her. So we were paying the doctors through her boyfriend uh, with cash. So they were able to get medical care for her without it being uh, levied from her bank account. Well, they deposited all that cash we gave them for the medical as proof of income for a loan. And so they got even more money. But, of course, all of this is illegal. They forged her signature on the documents. And uh, so they decided to um, set us up uh, and uh, murder us. Um, and we were totally trusting. We had absolutely no idea because what we were told from them, texts on the phones is, you'll never know how much you guys are appreciating all the work that you do and money and labor you contribute. So, you know, we didn't have any clue that there was a problem uh, until we drive in to pick up our uh, uh, property that's on this Kanaskis property up here in Okanagan County. And uh, the gate was open, which is usually closed and locked, and uh, which you know, uh, peculiar that would happen. But uh, we drove in the driveway, and there were no automobiles. And this is very remote part of the county. There's there's hardly anybody up there, um, and it's a long ways uh, from. You're not going to walk, so there's got to be an automobile if anybody's there. Um, so we uh, uh, drove up in the truck, and we had hired a fella to help us uh, move our property uh, off of this property that's up in Tenasket, uh, Ineas Valley. And uh, so they did not know about him during this this. Uh, attack. They didn't know that another guy would be coming along. It was a surprise to them. But anyway, as we drove up in the pickup, and uh, it's a circular driveway, so we, we stopped 
and he's behind us and it's lined with big rocks so you can't just drive anywhere you have to kind of stay on the narrow driveway uh we were attacked from all four sides just instantly literally the uh georgia brantis had a uh weapon he had formed uh, out of a giant log chain with a square master padlock that you know with a couple pounds in weight with sharp edges and uh, he swung it so hard that the padlock literally shattered it it dented the hardest strongest part of the vehicle and the lock shattered he was swinging that hard and screaming very you know foul language and murder threats and uh um, Deborah Long was standing in front of the pickup, uh, and the only choice I had was because they were uh, attacking and, and beating on it with uh, weapons that would break the windshield. Uh, I backed up, and uh, he had already Georgia Brantis had swung the chain and broken the mirror uh, on because this is a truck, uh, and it's got a fuel tank inside uh, behind in the trick pickup bed that uh, you just can't turn around and look out without getting up really high in the seat. Uh, so uh, I raised myself up and looked because there was someone behind the pickup. I knew as they attacked and I didn't want to back over them. So as I was looking backwards, unbeknownst to me, but the witness of uh, Boyd McPherson, who was the person we hired to uh, uh, go with us and help us is uh, he he doesn't know us he's he's you know doesn't have a dog in the fight here but he observes her bending down in front of this big square hooded pickup uh, and tying the uh, collar she has long strings on her collar of the shirt she's wearing to the front bumper of the truck and of course I can't see any of this because I'm looking backwards to back up and making sure I don't back over anybody when I do. Well, I didn't know it, but she had already tied herself to the bumper. So when I backed up, it took her body back with the truck. And um, the investigator that was hired uh, to, because uh, uh, one of the problems with this whole case is that the, the police didn't do any investigation. They took the uh, statements from the perpetrators as gospel and ran with it and never checked any of it out. So uh, as uh, we backed up and I turned around and looked forward, uh, there was no one in front. And prior, just just prior to backing away from her, she screamed, uh, go ahead and shoot him, go ahead and shoot. And they, we knew that they had a substantial arsenal uh, in the house and the windows were dark and you couldn't see through it. You couldn't see who was in there. We didn't know. You know, there were no automobiles, so we had no way to guesstimate how many people were present, how many people, because they had enough uh, uh, assault weapons for uh, half a dozen people easily um, in there. And uh, so uh, backing up, looking around, not seeing anyone in front of the truck, after she screamed, go ahead and shoot, I figured they were going to open fire on us. Um, and there was no one in front of me. Uh, the logical thing to do is get out of there. So that's what I did. As it happens, as according to the witness, uh, Wade McPherson, uh, as the truck went over, it rolled her. And so when it rolled her, it put tire prints on both sides of the body. And uh, um, because of that, uh, the police 
thought I backed up and ran over a second time, which didn't happen. And of course, it's, it's a big truck with tall wheels on it. You don't, I couldn't feel anything. Uh, you know, she was kind of under the middle of the truck when the tire went across diagonally. So there was no way for me to know. Uh, so we fled there uh, praying because the, the mob turned to, to attack Boyd and his truck when we drove out. And he was able to back up because there was no one behind him. And uh, so he turned around and uh, we fled uh, to the nearest point where there's cell tower, co- cell tower coverage because there's no uh, no cell phone coverage up there. Otherwise, we would have um, stayed outside the uh, crime scene there where they attacked us. Uh, so we drive uh, safely down to uh, Tenasket. I call 911. Uh, report that I had been ambushed and uh, um, asked for help uh, and uh, they sent a uh, deputy who uh, I didn't know at the time that anyone had been hit or run over. I was unaware that anyone was, was there because I was somewhat a little bit blacked out as I turned my head away from the chain. The chain went right across high level of the driver's windshield uh, of the truck. And I was expecting it to to come through the glass. It shattered the glass, uh, but it did not break. Uh, So I was very fortunate with that. So when I get down to Tenasket, call 911, uh, sheriff's deputy shows up, informs me that uh, um, a person has been run over and they died and uh, began making up all kinds of crimes, uh, vehicular homicide. And, uh, and I'm both of her and I are in shock because when this happened, there's three main elements to uh, assault. There's the verbal, the emotional, and the physical. And uh, all were present, especially emotional, because they, these people are the ones expressing how appreciative they are for the financial and labor help we're giving them and now all of a sudden they're trying to kill us so we're you know we're in a state of absolute shock uh we don't understand well this doesn't make any sense to us why would they do this because we were unaware at the time that they had been successful and gotten control of the property and that they had a million reasons for attacking us <clears throat> so can you and, uh, so you end up Getting arrested, um, was it at this point, or did they do an investigation? No, no, they, and that's the thing. Uh, you know, Boyd McPherson is an eyewitness uh, with, you know, impartial. Uh, he doesn't know any of the players, um, and uh, they never talked to him. They, they, the police never, he's, he's there at the junction with us, but they never go over and talk to him. Uh, the... Uh, um, Deputy asked me if uh, I wanted to talk, and uh, as he was uh, citing vehicular homicide, uh, everything he could think of, I said, well, no, I think I'd better have an attorney present uh, during questioning. And uh, so at that point, we were arrested, uh, put into the, uh, it was a pickup with a back seat in it, kind of crunched in there. And uh, Angel had a broken ankle at the time, and uh, she was walking on it, but it was very painful. 
and she had a very hard time. And so we asked for assistance to help her into the vehicle. They wouldn't give it. Um, so that we were then take to this, this, the, the incident happened about one twenty, one thirty, uh, um, in the afternoon and, uh, were arrested, uh, probably around three thirty uh, down at the junction and, uh, where it's about five by the time they take us to Okanagan County jail and, uh, put us in a cell. So you're and, arrested, uh, sorry, uh, within two hours of this incident yeah wow yeah. and uh um they uh it was wasn't until two o'clock in the morning that they opened those it was a very tiny little holding cell with no light in it, it was dark uh and they took me over to the booking area and asked me what i was being charged with and if i knew and i said i i have no idea and uh, they said uh, first-degree premeditated murder. And, uh, you know, it, I'm shocked because, I mean, in what courts do is they handle controversy. And there's no controversy here. All of the witnesses, uh, you know, admitted to what happened. Uh, Boyd McPherson, uh, his statement was not, uh, they ignored it when he, because he made a special trip over there after they did not. Uh, interviewing at the junction uh, where I called 9-11, um, he went back to the coast and then turned around the next week and came back and gave a, a statement to the sheriff's office of what he saw. And there, there's no controversy. These people premeditated. They, they hid the automobiles. Uh, they made weapons. They, they uh, had made signs. Uh, and again, you know, horrible vulgarities and, and th death threats on these signs. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's overwhelming because, uh, and the previous day, this happened on a Thursday. On Wednesday, they had called the sheriff and made a, a uh, complaint that uh, there had been a burglary. And I, Angel and I had broken in and, and stolen something. Well, that's not possible because <laughs> uh, there was no break. We had a key, and, and we were literally there to maintain the place for them. That was the the agreement. That's why the there's a dump truck and an equipment trailer and a scoop loading tractor with uh, rototillers and all that kind of stuff because uh, um, they wanted to grow garlic, and they weren't farmers, and I have a farming background, so I moved all the equipment up there to help them uh, do their garlic farm project and uh um so you know when this uh attack happens it is it is so emotional and a shock that these people that you trusted and helped and had nothing but praise are now all of a sudden trying to kill you and then they go and lie to police and say that uh we broke in, in broke entered and trespassed so that was part of the charges i was it was uh, first degree premeditated murder, um, criminal trespass, first degree, uh, grand theft, um, and uh, assault one uh, were the charges. So I want to I want to move kind of forward to the criminal justice process here. Um, so right. so you were never able to talk to an attorney, is that correct? 
Right. Initially, um, I uh, uh, tried to find a paid uh, attorney and found out that most of them are around wanted 450000 up front. And uh, I just, there's just no way I could get anybody to mortgage a house or anything and, and do that. So uh, I uh, filed a agency uh, for uh, defense counsel. And, uh, but I never got defense counsel for about five days. It, it took quite a while before I finally got uh, an attorney. Um, but he no more than took down the statement. Uh, we went through the omnibus. He was there for that. But immediately after that, literally the next day, he withdrew from the case and went to California. And from that point on, I had zero uh, legal counsel. Um, there were uh, members in the pool who I would try to contact. I would write letters. I would call. But they would not answer the call. They would not return the letter. And therefore, every month would be a status hearing, and I would appear at the status hearing without counsel, without having anybody. And I would write the court and say, you know, evidence is being lost, and I don't have counsel here who can uh, retrieve it or, or do anything. And that went on uh, all the way until February of 2016. So how is the how is the court justifying not appointing counsel to you? Uh, I wrote the court specifically asking, uh, and uh, the counsel pool that would appear at the desk uh, to give you an idea in Okanagan County in custody hearings are held on a Monday and there'd be in an eight hour court calendar, uh, 140 people. They'd try to get through that courtroom on that day. So it was usually less than two minutes. You walk in, sit down, sign a continuance and leave. And so the defense counsel never files a notice of appearance and, um, they won't answer my phone calls. They won't answer letters. I write to them. Uh, you know, saying, you know, I really need help here because uh, the evidence on my side is overwhelming. There's no dispute. There's no controversy. The, the, the facts, the truth, the evidence, the innocence is overwhelming, uh, but they won't look at it. So and, how does uh, how does uh, this this state of affairs change at some point? Uh, I... Specifically, I wrote uh, Judge Rawson, who was one of the Superior Court judges, saying, you know, uh, I've been incarcerated for 174 days without counsel and evidence is being lost. And twice in two of the monthly hearings, uh, you know, on separate months, uh, he chastised Attorney Kelly Siegel for not filing a notice of appearance in my case. But by her not filing, she's actually able to use information that I do because I'm asking, I'm writing them letters uh, against me. She's actually working with the prosecutor for a conviction, not on my defense. And she's supposed to be murder trial qualified out of Chicago. But instead, uh, twice uh, Judge Rawson scolds her for not uh, 
filing a notice of parents and working on the case. And, you know, uh, there was no evidence in the jail logs of me being visited. You know, they, they never came and visited me. And yet they would claim that verbally uh, in the courtroom during the continuance hearing. And then what happened? Again, these, uh, that, so, you know, this happens June 18th of 2015. It's January of 2016 uh, when uh, my wife, Angel, is able to hire uh, a private attorney. And uh, he comes in to file a notice of appearance uh, or, well, actually, uh, uh, exchange of counsel. And uh, the judge says, well, you, you can't because he doesn't have any counsel. We'll just have to file a notice of appearance. And so that's what my attorney did is uh, file on my behalf. Now, is your wife in custody at this point? Uh, she was for only four days. Four days. And was and, she facing uh, she, charges? Uh, initially, they charged her with murder, but they dropped that after a few hours, and Schurz was just the uh, theft and trespass, right? Right. But, Dave, one thing that that happened uh, when, I, when I got out of jail is I was greeted by uh, many of our friends. And they had me watch a, a video, and this video was the uh, evening news that um, broke when this incident happened. And the sheriff at the time was uh, Sheriff Frank Rogers, and he went on local TV, which eventually went national, and basically convicted both James and I um, in the media. And I, I was shocked to hear what he said. And at that time, you know, he did this within 48 hours of the incident. And so I knew that we had a big problem on our hands. Uh, the narrative that he was fed was incorrect, uh, and he was running with it. And this is unbeknownst to James. James has no idea what's going on on the outside. Um, and, and the media lit. It was just horrific. Um, and I think that's part of why the court um, didn't act any sooner, because now they have this issue on their hand where the sheriff misspoke. The sheriff spoke about a case which was ongoing, which he now used the media to convict. And basically, at that point, the case started out with prosecution misconduct right out of the gate so get into that i mean what what's the misconduct what's going on here because you know it, it, it it's a strange case uh that you're not being allowed to see an attorney you're not having one appointed you have the right to one you're being held in custody and 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 nobody seems to be that concerned about it except for maybe you guys Right, because they, they, they were convinced that they were going to get a conviction. They had they were absolutely uh, confident that uh, they would be able to convict me if we go to trial. But initially, one of the things, there were um, a number of four people that attacked the pickup from four different um, compass points. But one of them, Ruth Brooks, video recorded the whole thing. And 
um, the this is where it gets rough. The uh, elected prosecutor is Carl Sloan. The detect investigating detective is Craig Sloan. Craig Sloan uh, downloads the uh, cell phones onto his laptop computer, not uh, safe storage, and immediately gets rid of the phones, uh, all of the phones. Deborah Long had a phone. Uh, Georgia Branta had a Branta's had a phone which was recorded. It was his phone that Ruth Brooks had that she recorded the attack with. And um, all of these phones were sent back. They were not. And the search warrant that was issued by the judge said to keep them safe. But instead, the phones were sent back. Uh, and then the material supposedly downloaded onto uh, Craig Sloan, the brother of the prosecutor, Carl Sloan, um, got a supposedly a Russian ransomware virus on it and they were unable to recover anything on the computer. Wow. And uh, so we did get the phones. Uh, a couple of the phones were retrieved, but the evidence had been wiped off because, you know, half of the conversations were our phones, which remained in evidence in custody. And uh, the phones that were not in custody went back to the family members. Uh, they wiped them and then sent them back. And so, you know, evidence was willfully, knowingly, and maliciously uh, destroyed. And it was a, uh, I can't find a computer expert anywhere that uh, um, believes that the ransom virus wiped his entire computer and was unable to be retrieved. Um, it was just simply a case of uh, destruction of evidence. And the detective, Craig Sloan, stonewalled all the way through on this. They never really checked the, the weapon, uh, the two-foot length of uh, heavy logging chain with the big padlock on it that was broken, the damage right at uh, ear level of the driver to the truck and eye level to the driver of the truck. And, you know, uh, it shattered this lock. It was so much. So, um, we hired a, um, professor of law who is also career law enforcement, uh, trainer to do a separate investigation. And we, he went over there and found out that, all this evidence had been lost. It hadn't remained in chain of custody. And what they did have, they didn't even look at because he put on rubber gloves and the chain was in a paper bag. And as he pulled the weapon out of the paper bag, the uh, prosecutor was there and Craig Sloan, the detective, was there. They let out a gasp. Uh, at the uh, size of the weapon. And of course, again, uh, Brantes admitted that he was swinging the uh, chain at the truck trying to kill me. And it's one of the hardest things that uh, when we have these false prosecutions is when you have the truth, when you know you're innocent, and there's all of this evidence. The evidence is overwhelming. Uh, nobody has to, there's enough hard circumstantial evidence uh there shouldn't be a question and it's ignored so at what point was it not ignored anymore 
Uh, actually, what ha- uh, the, I think the defining moment was uh, the for most of the hearings, uh, Judge Christopher Culp uh, was the court officer, and he swore in Georgia Brontes, the one that attacked with the chain, in a deposition. And it was specifically asking questions over the phone. And when the uh, prosecuting attorney clearly lied under oath, and so did Georgia Brantis, um, and he realized that the, the video did exist and it was on the phone. This is Christopher Colt, the judge. It pretty much, I think he was, uh, that was too much for him when he saw the prosecuting attorney lying and uh, working with the uh, uh, respondent, uh, Georgia Brontes, that uh, it wasn't much longer after that. What we did is we had another hearing, and he called Craig Sloan, Christopher Culp, the judge, called Craig Sloan to the witness stand uh, during the hearing, and uh, he admitted that uh, um, he had lost the evidence and did not inform either the prosecutor or the defense attorney that the evidence had been lost and uh, that it was indeed there was video and it was lost uh, contrary to the uh, search warrant issued by the judge that I think that was the icing on the cake for uh, Christopher Culp saying look we uh, this was clearly a case of self-defense. Uh, the perpetrators was Georgia Brantis. Uh, Gilbertson uh, is the name of the investigating detective that uh, wrote the report, and that was very influential with the uh, court as well, because uh, he, you know, uh, showed that the a person had to be if they were laying down uh, 17 feet in front of the vehicle before you could see them. So there was no way with her up there underneath the bumper of me being able to have any knowledge that she was there. Uh, And so the testimony of the um, Gilbertson, the hired detective, was very helpful. Now, this isn't an actual trial. So so what kind of hearing is this? It's a a pretrial hearing. So all of this comes out in a pretrial hearing? Right. When was that? Um, Boy, that was just a few months, wasn't it? Well, the pretrial hearing, that probably would have took place in July, possibly June of 2018. And then Judge Culp uh, dismissed the case with prejudice the middle of July 2018. So we're already three years into this. when the dismissal finally comes across. And then uh, less than 30 days later, the state uh, files a notice of uh, appeal, that they intend to appeal uh, the judge's ruling. And then what happens? And then, and then, it, then we go back to having hearings uh, and we go on uh, literally within 10 days of one year to the day before um uh along what happens basically is uh the uh, elected prosecutor uh leaves 
uh, Okanagan County and goes to work in the uh, state AG's office as a Medicaid fraud squad investigator um, and uh, an appointed uh, prosecutor uh, comes up and there's an election and he's only appointed. And so in the election, we have a progressive uh, man uh, running whom we have a pretty sizable political uh, group in Okanagan County that uh, really helped him a lot. And uh, he, he won overwhelmingly. Uh, and of course, he was he had followed the case very closely because he's he works as a uh, defense attorney in that court often. Um, and so that it, it was that was another um, important thing. But in order for him to maintain uh, his own integrity in his office, he kicked the appeal from Okanagan County uh, in the filing in the third district. Um, to overturn Colt's ruling on, and what they were questioning is uh, whether Colt could rule there was video uh, lost because the, the the very words that uh, Judge Colt used in the dismissal was the egregious, uh, egregious cumulative misconduct by the prosecutor and the detective, just everywhere. He said it was egregious, and he stated he expected his opinion to be uh, appealed. So he wrote it with that in mind. Uh, so now we have a, a new elected prosecutor who's progressive, and uh, but to maintain his integrity of his office, he refers it to Tamara Hanlon, a special prosecutor in Yakima County, which is south of Okanagan. And uh, she publishes... Uh, in her brief, because uh, uh, she she asked for more time uh, on this appeal, uh, and of course we can test that. This has been going on for uh, four years now, so we don't we don't want them to have more time. Are you and in, in custody her, during this appeal? Uh, th this is now in twenty nineteen. Yeah. So, and are you and, still uh, in custody? Uh, no, I was. Uh, I had the uh, uh, char the charges against me, but uh, um, for the first uh, eight months after they low reduced the bail and I was released, I wore an ankle monitor, I see. which is a, another uh, horrible story. But uh, um, to the point of uh, Tamara Hanlon, uh, she, in her brief to the court, she said. The, in the interest of justice for Washington State would be the uh, set up for trial tract, try, convict, and sentence James Fair. That would be justice. Well, the U.S. Observer was able to um, print and publish their newspaper um, showing the overwhelming evidence that uh, this was a self-defense case. So what happened was is the elected uh, prosecutor for Yakima County sent it to um, the Washington State's Attorney General's office, and they have what they call the Washington uh, Association of Prosecuting Attorneys, uh, WAPA. And they took 
six of their best attorneys from six different counties and looked at the whole case, not just the appeal. And that's when they recommended that the appeal be withdrawn uh, because the state could not overcome uh, the burden of proof that it was not self-defense. So how long were you held in custody on this? Uh, in I was in a maximum security cell in Okanagan County Jail for eight months. For eight months. And then at that point, you're, you're released, but you're on bail, but you're on uh, an ankle monitor. Ankle monitor, right. For how long? Uh, another eight months. Another eight months. And then, so that's 16 months right there. So then this case goes another two years? Yes, correct. And because you know, we're doing interlocutory appeals along the way, uh, the cult would refuse to certify the record. And so we would, every time there was a, you know, they would, what I was really up against was the prosecutor literally made up his own evidence and was trying to get us to prove him wrong rather than just stick to the facts of the case. And uh, so it, it turned into an epic battle. And this uh, thing just with, ended a few months ago. Correct, July of this year. So, you know, it, it was dismissed in 2018, July 17th. And then uh, just <clears throat> the appeal was withdrawn in uh, July 10th of uh, 2019. <laughs> and so... Are you now seeking uh, a lawsuit, or what? What are you uh, doing about this now? We filed uh, very soon after the dismissal a notice of appeal, or a notice of uh, tort claim, and uh, then hired a uh, law firm out of Spokane to do a uh, Title Forty Two Nineteen Eighty Three Civil Rights case. And are you and, uh, doing that against the prosecutor? Because, as we know, that's difficult. Right, but um, that's what where we're at is because he is paid half of his salary comes from the state. He is considered a state prosecutor. So uh, initially, we named the prosecutor in Okanagan County, but now the state says no. Uh, they have to have one of their prosecutors because it's actually the state has a um, interest uh, in this. And so uh, we're waiting for the state attorney uh, for Washington State uh, to come in on uh, this uh, tort claim. Well, this feels like a movie coming up. Uh, this is an incredible story. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I want to thank you guys for coming on and, and sharing a little bit of your lives from the last four and a half years. Well, thank you. I appreciate the work you're doing down there. That was amazing. That was a great uh, Vanguard event you had. Well, thank you. That was James and Angel Fair, who's incredible experience with prosecutorial misconduct and fighting for their freedom finally ended last year uh earlier this year actually um the uh the charges were dropped last year and then the appeal went into this year um just an incredible story and people think that this kind of stuff doesn't happen unfortunately this is the everyday injustice of the court system that's all we have for now. 
Join us again next week for another episode of Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald.